At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had not known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He went on from there and entered their synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him? He said to them, Which one of you has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Why don't we begin with a word of prayer this morning. Heavenly Father, um, when we come to talk about Sabbath, when we come to talk about rest, when we talk about Jesus, uh, we all come in with a bunch of restlessness, a bunch of things on our hearts and minds. May you give us peace this morning. May you give us eyes to see, ears to hear. What it is your word is teaching us. What it is Jesus has spoken and his apostles have recorded. May you guide us in all truth and wisdom today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, so there's this kind of expression, okay? Uh, (laughs) An expression I know all too well. It usually happens when I walk in the door after a long day of work, you know, my, my kids are shouting full of joy, Daddy, you know, and Allie says, welcome home, and then Ava gives me a kiss, and Israel has this big goofy grin on his face, and, and then there's that expression. It's full of joy, it's full of compassion, but it's also full of exhaustion, <laughs> you know, as Allie continues, now take the kids in the next room, please. <laughs> And here's the deal. One thing that all moms have in common 
whether you spend the majority of your vocational energy at home, within the home, or the majority of your vocational energy outside of the home, one thing that all moms have in common is that they're tired. Um, and, and because kids, as wonderful as they are, they're exhausting. They're exhausting. I mean, physically, you spend so much time chasing them, trying to keep them from putting their finger in an electric socket or up their nose or up their sibling's nose, right? Emotionally, they're exhausting because they're always pressing the boundaries, trying to figure out what it means to be independent and dependent, you know, obedient and yet learning to live, you know, whether it be eight months old, eight years old, 28 years old. And then mentally, they're just exhausting as well because as soon as they can start talking, it seems like they're following you around with the incessant why. <laughs> and, and you don't want to look, you know, and be thoughtless and just say, because, okay? Um, and then when they get older, you're the one following them around, asking incessantly why they're doing what they're doing. And they're just saying, because, okay? <laughs> you know? Being a mom is tiring, and I'm not a mom, and I'm getting tired just talking about it. So hear me, and I want to join the refrain of what Tyler said earlier. Thank you, moms from Christ Community. Thank you so much um, for all that you've done. And the reality is, in our culture, I think that almost everybody's tired anymore. At least that's one of our most common refrains. Whether you're single or you're married, you probably or maybe have a job that has you traveling quite a bit, or at the very least, you work inconsistent hours long hours, or maybe just strange hours that don't really fit with our biorhythms. And that's even just the tip of the iceberg. Because underneath all of that, some of you are wrestling with some really, some really deep grief over the love lost of a friend, of a family member. Some of you are wrestling with discouragement that you're experiencing in your day-to-day -day work, or maybe the lack of finding a job. And then some of you are just tired of being tired. I mean, there's so many activities that coincide with our personal goals, with our family plans, with our professional advancement, or even just life in general. And when we find ourselves in this restlessness, it seems as if these remedies that we pursue do anything but actually give us rest. Now, believe it or not, I came across an article in Oprah's O Magazine. <laughs> it's Mother's Day, you know? And Sarah Restad Long, she writes something very brilliant about these remedies we pursue. She says, the things you do when you're tired, like reaching for the fourth cup of coffee, the remote, the cupcake or cakes, are almost never the things that'll get you untired. We've got a radical new idea. How about a real rest? Do you even know what that means? <laughs> so let me ask you this morning as we start off, do you? Do you know what real rest looks like? Can you imagine how your life would look radically different if it was defined by real rest? How you would be different. How your job and how you go about your daily activities would be different. And don't you want that? I know I do. And this, it's this rest that Jesus has come to make a reality the whole world over in you and me. And so when we go through our passage this morning in Matthew chapter 12, what we see is that we need more than anything else. It isn't a vacation. It isn't a break from the kids. It isn't a nap, although those are nice. It isn't a promotion or a new job or retirement. What we need more than anything else, for real rest, you need the Lord of rest. 
For real rest, you need the Lord of rest. If you're new with us, we've been walking through Matthew's account of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection for a bit now. And specifically, we've highlighted over the past couple weeks what it looks like for us to respond to this King Jesus. Last week, we were in Matthew chapter 11, and towards the end, we saw Jesus' great invitation, his great invitation to learn from him, not just come to him, but to learn from him when we are with him, and find this invitation to a great intimacy in his yoke where we find deep integrity. And out of that flows rest. And now as we enter into chapter 12, Jesus unpacks a more robust and more focused understanding of that rest that he's come to offer us, okay? So if you haven't already, would you please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12? If you're using one of our community Bibles, it's found on page number 816, 816. While you're turning there, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever felt like someone was watching you? Not right now. I mean, I am. Um, <laughs> I see you. Um, and hey, if you're a mom and you're sleeping, congratulations, you deserve it. Um, so let's just say that out, out, out from the start here. But no, seriously, have you ever had like that rear window kind of moment? I, I read a, a, a psychological study that if someone is staring at you, there's like this sixth sense or eighth sense. We always talk about the sixth sense, but whatever sense it is, where you can kind of tell that people are watching you. <laughs> so if you ever feel like people are watching you, for the most part, it's probably true. <laughs> Great way to start. Now, Matthew 12, <clears throat> Jesus and his disciples, they're walking through this grain field, and they're throwing back fistfuls of grain like their sunflower seeds, and almost as if, you know, the Pharisees have been lying in wait. They pop up out of nowhere and say, aha, you know, um, Jesus, your disciples are breaking the law. And if you're anything like me, this, this seems so strange, okay? Because at first I thought, well, maybe the Pharisees are concerned about stealing. Because, I mean, if you go down to Costantino's and you just start picking out your selection of gummies <laughs> out of the bag without buying, chances are it's not going to turn out great. Trust me, I've asked. Maybe tried. No, I haven't. I've asked, okay? But here's the deal. It was actually lawful in first century Israel to go about and pick some handfuls of grain while you're walking through the fields. So what gives? Well, believe it or not, this isn't an issue of what they're doing. It's a matter of when they're doing it, a matter of when they're doing it. You see, picking just a handful of grain was one of some 39 laws, 39 forms of work that were forbidden to be done on the Sabbath. And if you're anything like me, then I start asking, well, where on earth is that funky rule in the Bible, okay? Well, the reality is, is that it's not. <laughs> you following me? Okay. This, this rule comes out of the Pharisaical halakha, halakha. This is this organization of the oral and written understanding of the Torah, the Hebrew scriptures. And the Pharisees, they brought together all these extra rules to make sure that the people of God didn't even get close to breaking the biblical rules. Rules upon rules upon rules. And as these things go, I mean, we see these in cultures all over the place, eventually the extras slowly meander their way to become essentials. And we can't tell the difference between the two. So what do we do when we aren't able to figure out which is the difference between what God has said and what man has made up because they think they have the best intentions in mind? Well, we do what people have done throughout history. We go back to what God has actually said in the scriptures concerning the Sabbath, okay? So we're going to do that briefly. We're going to do a quick overview 
of what God has said in the Sabbath in three minutes or less. Okay, so hang with me. So we're going to go to the book that actually literally means the beginning, Genesis. And in Genesis, we see that God has created the world in six days. And then in Genesis chapter 2, we see that God rests. He stops from his work and delights in his creation. And this is, this is so crucial to the very fabric of the nation of Israel that it becomes paradigmatic on how they understand their weak flow. Such that when we get to Exodus 20, it's at the very center of the Ten Commandments to keep the Sabbath. And Moses, he gives the explanation as to why this is so crucial is because you are made in the image of God. And if God can make the world in six days and stop working on the seventh, then so should you. This is for your good to so now experience what it means to live life as a human being rather than a slave under the oppression of Egypt. Then we get to Deuteronomy, which is Moses's last sermon before he dies. And he still highlights there as he reiterates the Ten Commandments that this Sabbath rest, this day of rest is crucial for the nation of Israel to actually enjoy a rest-filled life once they enter the promised land. Then after they've been in the land for a while, never really observing the Sabbath all too great, we hear from prophets like Isaiah who come and lay the smackdown on Israel because the, the, the lack of observance of the Sabbath is an outward sign, what Isaiah says, of an inward rejection and betrayal of who God is and who he is in their life. So with that quick overview, thinking with, <laughs> right, hang with me, with that quick overview, if that's what God has said about the Sabbath, what did it mean for a Jewish person living in exile in the first century to be faithful? And there's the rub. Because for the Pharisees, it meant three things. Rules, rules, and rules, okay? The Pharisees, everything was about rules. And for religious people, the answers are always more and more rules. If God draws the line here, why don't we draw the line a little further back just to be safe? And as you can imagine the outcome, if you've ever been in rush hour and you see that person who's driving 10 miles underneath the speed limit, <laughs> it never goes well, right? Oftentimes, they're the ones who cause the accidents. It's like, come on, get a move on. Sorry. And the irony in all this is that their ancient how-to list that were supposed to usher in this restful life were actually leaving the nation of Israel all the more restless. And that's what Jesus steps into. So how does he begin to unearth and display that their understanding of Sabbath rest is inadequate? He goes exactly where they think they're pros. He goes to the Hebrew scriptures. And he highlights two particular case studies in our passage here in 12 verses 1 through 8. Here's the first one. And it comes from 1 Samuel 21. Here we find King David and his men and they're hungry. They're actually starving and they're wandering and they wander their way into the tabernacle, which just to remind us, the tabernacle was the temple before the temple. This is kind of like God's double wide, <laughs> which is kind of fun to think about. Um, Ahimelech, you know, the priest at the tabernacle, he's, David and his men, they come in and they're famished. And what he does is he gives them the bread that was unlawful for anyone other than the priests to eat, according to Leviticus chapter 24. And yet when you look across the pages of God's law, across the pages of scripture, never is King David and his men condemned for this. So King Jesus says, isn't this interesting? <laughs> the second case study we see here comes from Numbers 28, where we find that the priests themselves, Jesus says, break the Sabbath every week 
since the right worship of God in the temple required the priests to do some priestly work on the Sabbath. Isn't that interesting? Says King Jesus. So if it was okay for Ahimelech to let David and his men eat the sacred bread under special circumstance, how much here, the one who's in the line of David, the great Messiah, the one who's come to deliver his people, should not have special occasion to let his men eat out of the fields. If the temple was so great that it allowed exception to the Sabbath because it was greater than the Sabbath itself, the, the temple, the place where there was a patch of heaven on earth where God's presence was uniquely felt, how much more now that God has come in the flesh, Emmanuel, and Jesus the Christ, and he stands before them, how much more he so communicate an exception. Isn't he greater than the temple? So what's Jesus trying to do here? You see, the Pharisees don't understand who they're talking to. And what Jesus says right out the gate is that real rest is a person first. Real rest is a person first. Way before it's a list of rituals, it is a person first. You see, what this world needs, what we need, isn't a new ritual, not a vacation or even a break from reaping the grain of life. Rather, we need the real Lord of the Sabbath to invade our life to invite him in, to know him for who he is and to understand all that he has done for us and so free us into the peace of now living in his presence. If only the Pharisees would have understood God's true intention in the law and that's what Jesus is pressing in on. You'll notice in our passage, he says, if you'd have only understood what God said in Hosea chapter six, verse six, that I do not, <laughs> I, want, I want mercy, not sacrifice, which is his way of saying, don't get stuck in this ritualism. It'll destroy you and you'll become oppressive and so condemn the guiltless that are right here before you. You see this? When you focus just on rituals rather than on the person, you slowly become an oppressive kind of person. That's a side. And if they would have just understood this, then Jesus' mercy to his followers on the Sabbath would have made sense to them. Even more crucial, Jesus would have made sense to them. If you're here this morning, chances are that you, well, I know you're here, <laughs> but chances are if you're here and you're just tired, <laughs> tired of being tired, right? Here we go. <laughs> if you're tired of being tired and you're desperate and maybe your first move is to create a stop doing list, which is a really healthy thing. Sometimes we create to-do lists, but some of us need to, do need to create stop doing lists. What are the things I need to stop doing because I'm just incessantly busy? But if that's your first move, you may get momentary relief, but you'll never find true and lasting rest. You see, real rest, for real rest to take shape in our lives, we need the Lord of the Sabbath to do more than just deal with our rhythms in life. We need him to do that, but we need him to do more. We need him to first get at the work under our work. If you've ever had that moment where you're, you're sitting still, which is rare, <laughs> and you begin to almost hear the inner workings of what's going on in your heart and your mind, you can almost hear the clanking of the work under the work. It's what Pastor Tim Keller has often called the inner murmur of self-reproach. It's when you're sitting there and then you hear this over and over. Don't you, don't you have more to do? You think you're good enough? Why do you think you've been put on this planet? 
Get off the chair. Get a move on. You're not good enough. You haven't earned your place in this world. Begin to justify your existence. You think you're ever going to be one full of approval? And it slowly weighs on you that you can never sit and be still and know that I am God. In those moments, how do you get at the work under your work? How do you get at the work under your work? How do you go about silencing that inner murmur of self-reproach? One way to discover how you go about this, your modus operandi and tackling this work under your work, is to finish this sentence. I would really rest if. Finish that out. I would really rest if. If I got a good night's sleep. Oh, if I found that special someone. If I finally got that job. If I got that promotion. I would finally rest then. And those all have, let me be clear, a place in our lives. But if that's what you think is going to bring true and lasting rest, you will always find yourself restless, hiding in grain fields looking for the next person to call out. <laughs> you see, no amount of dating, walking, sleeping, or meditation will ever bring that rest. It can numb it. I think it can distract us from it. And we can even ignore it, but it'll never resolve the work that is under your work. Someone greater than the temples we are building with our incessant work is here. He has come. And it's only in the Lord of the Sabbath will our hearts finally hear the words they need to hear outside of themselves. Words that we can't just tell ourselves, but we need to be heard, need to hear spoken to us and over us. And that only is found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We have to learn to, to finish the sentence, I would only rest, I would really rest if I embraced Jesus for all that he is and learned to walk with him. See, real rest is a person first. And for only Jesus can get at the work under your work. And when you do that, when you, when you look to Jesus and who he is and this relationship with him and find rest, he does something that I think is really counterintuitive. You see, what he does is he actually comes to show us that real rest is a gift even in our work. Even in our work. You know, after Jesus has this awkward encounter in the first eight verses in the grain fields, he heads to the synagogue. And while he's there, this man with a withered hand catches his eye. And the Pharisees are still fuming about how they got schooled out in the, the grain fields. And they see this as an opportunity to trap Jesus. I mean, the text is very explicit. They're looking for a way to take Jesus down. And so they ask this little ornery question in verse 10. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? You see, to the Pharisees where everything was about sacrifice and had nothing to do with mercy, the answer was obvious. Of course not. Of course not. So in the same way that when Jesus kind of steps into our life and he reframes everything, he sees their trap from a mile away and he actually reframes the question beginning in verse 11. Look with me. Which one of you, speaking of the Pharisees, who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? Good question. So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. 
And the Pharisees had no comeback. And yet they were so frustrated because this is completely antithetical to their very framework of understanding what Sabbath rest is. For them, Sabbath rest, it came in these rigid external rules of inactivity only such that healing or even doing good and delighting in good was outside of God's design for human beings. And then Jesus really does it because then he, he does exactly what he just said. He heals this guy. He says, stretch out your hand and his hand is restored. And this word for restored is like the language of new creation. We see it show up in John chapter five as well. His hand is fully functional as if it was completely recreated as God intended. Jesus has done a marvelous work in this man's hand, a good work. And the Pharisees... You know, you have to wonder what else everybody else is thinking in the synagogue. But Matthew zeroes in only on the Pharisees and their scowls just darken the whole landscape. And sure, they've had their issues with Jesus up until now. Time and again, we see in Matthew, they're frustrated, they're ticked. But here, in this moment, Jesus meddles a little too much. And we finally see in verse 14, but the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him, how to murder him. Here. I mean, only a restless heart could see that and see the need for conspiracy. Only a restless heart could want to destroy someone who's bringing restoration around them. And you see, if you're unwilling to embrace the Lord of the Sabbath, then your understanding of rest will always be relegated to the realm of weekend retreats, 20-minute yoga sessions, or an afternoon bike ride, which... To be honest, our lives are just too busy. <laughs> and that'll make rest rare at best or impossible for most. And so restlessness and restlessness and restlessness will weigh you down. Listen, you can't solve a restless heart by just working less hours. We all want the four-hour work week. I mean, of course, right? The book was made for a reason. <laughs> it's, another, it's a reason it's a bestseller, but... If real rest is a person first, then what happens when we embrace Jesus is that he does something completely phenomenal and that we can actually begin to know rest in of all places in our busyness. This ora et labora, the ancient Benedictine way where prayer and work, where rest and work are actually integrated rather than segregated. We're actually, we can be in the spot where we thought we were the furthest from God, oftentimes very unaware of God and our busyness, but he's saying, I'm right there. And rest is available even in the busy, mundane flow of your life. But I think Henry David Thoreau says it best when he says, it's not enough to be busy, okay? So are the ants. And my ants are getting all over my house. It's springtime, so I've got this metaphor in my head. The question is, what are we busy about? What are we busy about? And so I want you to think about this. How are you doing good instead of just doing stuff? How are you doing good instead of just doing stuff? What are you busy about? Because there's actually rest in doing good. <laughs> there's a deep rest that comes with this. When you look at your space, your workspace, the place where you spend a majority of your time, where God has you today, are you aware of the vulnerable in your midst as Jesus was? The social outcast, are you combating stereotypes? Are you working to care for those who are forgotten and ridiculed? 
It could be a coworker. It could be a fellow student. It could be a boss. It could be a client. Is looking for the good a priority rather than just an extra in your life? And maybe you're thinking, okay, Gabe, I've already got way too much stuff going on. If I look at all the stuff on my plate, how am I supposed to prioritize doing something else that's good? I thought this was a sermon on rest. (laughs) I'm feeling quite restless at this moment. Well, there was an interesting article in the Wall Street Journal by Laura Vanderkam titled, Are You As Busy As You Think? that I thought was really helpful. Basically, she invites us to change our everyday language in order to change our perspective on our busyness. And I want you to listen to what she writes. She says, instead of saying, I don't have time, try saying, it's not a priority. (laughs) Just that switch in language. I don't don't have time. Actually, it's just not a priority because that's what you're saying. Listen to what she she goes. Often that's perfectly inadequate explanation. I have time to iron my sheets. I just don't want to. (laughs) Wow. But other things are harder. Try it. I'm not going to edit your resume, sweetie, because it's not a priority. I don't go to the doctor because my health is not a priority. If these phrases don't sit well, that's the point. Changing our language reminds us that time is a choice. If we don't like how we're spending an hour, we can choose differently. You have a choice. You have a choice. How are you doing good instead of just doing stuff? Yeah, Gabe, but I hate my job. Okay, okay, I get that. But even still, are you looking for the good? That patch of Sabbath that's somewhere in the midst of where God has you today. It may not be everything. It may not even be most of your job, but God has you there for a reason. Are you looking for the good even there? Are you looking for the vulnerable that happens to be there? Who knows what God may be doing in bringing you in the presence of one person who needs restoration, one person who has a withered part in their lives and they need to hear the gospel or they need a helping friend. They need someone to be praying for them or to be an advocate for them. Do you have an imagination for how your work, even if you think it's in a small way, but is contributing to the common good of our city? Do you see God at work in your work? You see, the Pharisees, they saw God in Christ heal a man right in front of them, and they completely missed it. And the same can be true of us today. Choose to make good a priority, even in a bad job. And he will bring deep rest in the midst of that. So... We've seen that rest is first a person. We've also seen that rest is a gift even in our work. But there's one more crucial component. One more component that sets Christian rest apart from all other rest, and it's this. Real rest is good news. Real rest is good news way before it's good advice. It's good news way before it's good advice. Look, when the dust settles here in Matthew chapter 12, and you get to verse 15, we we begin to see this stark contrast between the fierce hatred of the Pharisees and this compelling gentleness of Jesus. Because he withdraws. He doesn't put up a fight. He withdraws, and people follow him. 
And he's come to bring the Sabbath rest in the most unlikely of ways through his death, and that isn't now. And so what he does is when people begin to follow him, even as he withdraws, he heals them, and he says something so strange. I thought we were supposed to go and proclaim the gospel and all of what Jesus has done, and then Jesus says, hey, don't tell anybody I'm the one who did this. It's because now is not yet the time for him to go to the cross. It's coming, but there's more to be said, more to be done before that time arrives, before God's divinely ordained path is brought to completion in the cross of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. He has more to say, more to do. And what Matthew wants us to know is that this confrontation and then the quiet, this engagement and then this withdrawal, It's in fulfillment of what God has always promised his great Messiah would be like, would do. And to show that, we find the longest sustained Old Testament quote in all of Matthew's gospel account right here. It's Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 4. It's called a suffering, uh, a a servant song of the suffering servant. And what is so true about this is in the first century, everybody, almost everybody saw this as a passage pointing to define what the Messiah would be like when he came, bringing justice the whole world over, which is why the Gentiles are included. But why does Matthew, I mean, this is a large chunk of real estate. Why does Matthew quote this passage in full? Where if you've been with us up until this point, plenty of times he'll quote just a snippet of the passage, but he's highlighting the whole passage. But here he quotes the thing in total. Why? Because he doesn't want us to miss this. That the Lord of the Sabbath will bring his divine and forever rest through of all ways, through his role as the suffering servant on the cross as foretold by Isaiah. You see, the real reason for our restlessness, this angst we have under our work, as much as we try to combat it, it's that you and I, each one of us, are deeply broken and flawed. And we get carried up in this anxiety that we think if we just accomplish more, if we just do more, we can put the pieces back together ourselves by ourselves. And this is why we need to build our resume. This is why we need accomplishment. This is why we need distraction. Because we have so much shame and guilt over the fact that we can't put the pieces back together ourselves. And the only way to get at this work under your work is to, yes, rest first in Jesus and what he's done for us. Jesus the Christ, that on the cross, he has finished that work for us. And as he cries from that rugged wood, it is finished. It silences that inner murmur of self-reproach in a way that we never could. And he accomplishes what we've always tried to accomplish, but he does it perfectly. So that one day in his resurrection, when he returns, after his resurrection has ascended and he will return, He will usher in that forever forever Sabbath that we read about in Hebrews chapter 4. He will wipe every tear from our eyes that we read about in Revelation 21 and 22 when he makes his his world new. Where we will both work and relax full of rest. This is where real rest is taking us. This is what real rest has accomplished. For real rest, you need the Lord of rest. The question that continues to loom over each and every one of us is how will you respond to his invitation?